And so 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 10 says this. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come with the days appointed, that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we uh, pray that you'd be honored tonight. Um, that we would learn from you, God, that we would not be so foolish as to think that we've heard all these stories before and we don't need to glean anything from them, God. Your word is active and continually doing a new work, Lord. I pray that you would give us vision, you would give us direction, uh, but more than anything, your character would be revealed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So guys, uh, we're going to start David's story by recapping Saul's story really quick. Um, And I think that's really important. Yes. Uh, I just read from the ESV. The ESV I just read from. The English Standard Version. (laughs) Yeah, sorry about that. Um, So we're going to start David's story. And and I, I, I like how Pastor Mark says that um, that there's a Saul in every single one of us, right? He, he said that last week. There, there's some sort of Saul. It, it, we, we love to associate with David, right? We love to associate with David and Goliath stories. We love to associate with being God's favored ones. Uh, we love that. Um, but the thing is that there, there is a rebellious Saul in every single one of us. We do have these tendencies to do what the people want. Um, there's a tendency ever since the Garden of Eden, guys, to place blame on others, And that's exactly what Saul's original sin was here. Um, Immediately after he was caught doing something he knew he wasn't supposed to do by Samuel, he immediately placed blame on other people. And he would continue to do that all throughout the rest of his story. He would always be placing blame on others for his mistakes. We see that in Saul's life. And every single time he sins, he somehow is able to find a scapegoat. In which it's usually the people. It's usually the people for King Saul. He always says, the people forced me to, or the people were growing tired, or the people were doing this, or the people. He, he hides his rebellion under being a servant of people, right? He hides his rebellious heart by being a servant, by saying, well, it's what the people wanted. And he continually does that. And so Saul, even after this moment that we just read, where he had a sacrifice, he had made a sacrifice at the altar of the Lord when it was not his place. He had not waited the appropriate time. It was not his duty. He shouldn't have done it. And immediately after, he blamed somebody else. And after this original sin, he would then start a, a downward spiral, spiral towards jealous insanity. This was, the, this was the first case of just many different cases that Saul would spiral down into. It was just the beginning of Saul literally going crazy with power. Literally going crazy with power. After this, he would torture his people with starvation. 
after this. Shortly after this passage, he would say, no man eats. None of, none of my people are going to eat. And he would starve his people until he got what he wanted. After that, he would uh, force his people into starvation. He would harass his son. He would continue to disobey God. And he would try and kill David and start a manhunt for his head. That was, that was one of Saul's biggest things. One of his biggest sins was that he was ferociously after David's head once he started to get jealous of him. Once he realized that David would start to gain the favor of the people, Saul would start a manhunt after him. He would throw a spear right at David's head and he would miss and David would flee into the mountains. In light of this, in light of this, guys, in light of Saul's downward spiral as king of Israel, as, God, as Israel's first king, mind you, Saul was Israel's first king. Originally, it was God ruling over with eldership and with appointed judges to help them in times of trial and tribulation. Originally, it was a government established by God, but the people said, well, all the other countries have kings. Why can't we, right? It was one of those, everyone else has a king. Why don't we get a king too? No fair, right? And so God, and, and, and so the people choose for themselves a king, someone of um, a high stature, someone who is good looking. Now, now this sermon, as we look through David's life, we find out that this, it, it is all in light of this one verse where he says this, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. We are going to learn, guys, that David's story is nothing like Saul's. So David's story is nothing like Saul's. We, we, we see Saul's story, guys, and, and, and we see that it was kind of a, it was a typical Hollywood story almost, right? Where, where you know, he was, he was young, he was handsome, he was talented, everyone loved him. So, of course, he would be king, Right? David's story is very different. David's story is very different in, in the fact that, that he, he was ruddy, he was small, he was the youngest, he was cast out, he was forgotten. And it would take him years and years of struggle before he became king. And when it came to choosing a new king for Israel, after, after, after Saul was cut off from God, so, so, so God said, listen, I'm going to choose for myself. A man who is after my own heart. I'm going to appoint Samuel to go find my new king. I have found a man whom my heart loves and who loves my heart. Right? Now, God is after the heart that is after God's heart. That's, that's just the way God appoints his kings. That's the way God appoints his leaders. And we see here that, that, that when when when. Samuel is appointed to go find a new king of Israel. When Samuel is appointed, go find a man that is after my own heart. He wants to use the exact same criteria for which they found Saul. He wants to use the exact same criteria for which they found Saul. God says, hey, go to Jesse's household. So Jesse you know, comes and he has all of his sons, right? This is found in 1 Samuel chapter 16. You guys don't have to go there. I'll read it for you. But essentially what happens is that Samuel goes to the house of Jesse and he says, hey, God told me the next king of Israel is one of your sons, right? God told me the next king of Israel is in your household. So line your sons up, right? And I'm going to choose the next king of Israel. And it's very interesting. We see this here in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 6. It says this, when they came, he looked on Eliab. So Eliab was David's older uh, brother, 
And he said this, he said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him, right? So he looks at the oldest, the strongest, the best looking guy. And he says, surely this guy must be king, right? And God, and, and, and God's going to swiftly rebuke Samuel. He's going to say, do not look at the appearance or at the height or his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Saul was chosen for his looks and stature. We see that. You know, Mark went through that last week. Saul was specifically chosen because he was tall, he was lean, he was handsome, he was a good warrior. That's why Saul was chosen to be king. That that was man's choice when choosing their leader. David was chosen for his heart. David was chosen for his heart. This is literally, this is really, really important for us to understand. It is incredibly important for us to understand that it was David's heart that made God choose him as king because what we will realize is that David's heart had to be in the right place because what God would end up doing and putting David through was not for the faint of heart. Between the time that David was anointed as Samuel, so uh, anointed by Samuel. So what, what ended up happening was uh, Jesse's like, well, here are all my sons, right? Anoint one as king. And, and Samuel's looking at all of them, and he's like, God hasn't chosen any of them. And he's like, do you have any more sons? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, but he, you know, he's out there with the sheep, right? And you know, I just picture just looking in the distance. So this is little ruddy kid, you know, poofy curly hair, and he's just like chilling with the sheep, playing his harp, right? Like you know, and I, I just picture this, and I picture David. He's imagine this. Imagine the prophet, the prophet of Israel, comes and says, "Line up all of your sons." And his father is so embarrassed of him that he doesn't even call him to be in the lineup. His father is so embarrassed of David that he doesn't even call him over. That's where David started. Okay? David started the least in his household, forgotten by his father. And when Samuel finally goes over to him, God says, this is my king. This is my king. He is a shepherd. He spent time below the star seeking my face late at night alone. He knows how to protect sheep from lions and bears. He will defend my people from their enemies. He will take care of them as as a shepherd does, because that is my heart. My heart is of a shepherd. And so David is anointed king. But between the time that David was anointed by Samuel and that he actually became king over all of Israel would be a time span of about 20 years. David anointed king in the field, in his his pasture. David is anointed king by this prophet. Fifteen years pass before he is finally king of Judah. And then another five to seven years pass before he's king of all Israel. So, So this is 20 years of knowing that he is anointed to be king. And this is 20 years of him going through total turmoil of waiting. Can you guys imagine that? Can you guys imagine being told by God that, that you are going to be just whatever, whatever it may be, the CEO of your next company, right? Of the company you work at. 
right? Or, or, or if God told you, you single people in here, God showed you your spouse and said, this is your spouse, but you have to wait 20 years, right? Can you guys imagine that? Can you imagine you know exactly who it is, you know exactly what it's supposed to be, and God says, wait, 20 years. Or God shows you the position that you're supposed to be in at your company or at your church or whatever it may be. He shows you the calling on your life. This is exactly what you were destined to do. 15, 20 years. You can't have it. That's, that's hard, huh? And that is why when God appoints somebody, he looks at their heart. Because if they're in it for fame, if they're chosen because they're good looking or because they're talented, They're not going to hold out through God's refining process. They're not going to wait that long. They're going to grow impatient. So so God chooses the person whose heart is after his glory and whose heart is content and sitting in God. Because what God does to his leaders, guys, is incredibly, incredibly hard. In those 20 years... David would be Saul's personal musician and armor bearer. So that was the first job that he got, right? He would be, he would be the armor bearer for Saul, right? He knows he's going to replace Saul one day, and he has to carry his armor. He has to play music for him while he drinks and sleeps. In that 20 years, he would defeat Goliath and then marry Saul's daughter, right? In that 20 years, he would become the greatest commander Israel's army has ever known. And so he would rise to fame and he would probably think, this is now it. People are, call- People are praising my name. They're saying, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed ten thousands, right? Everyone is shouting David's name. Everyone is incredibly, they're, 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 they're on David board. Like they are Team David, right? They are Team David. There's Team Saul, none of them, right? It's all Team David. Everyone is, is, is on board for him being king. But soon, Saul would, grow so, Saul would grow so jealous that David would be exiled. And he would have an entire army hunting him. 20 years. Okay. He would have turmoil. He would have war, battles, emotional and physical hurt. He would wait in the dark, damp caves of, of the desert. And just cry to the Lord. People would abandon him. David at one point would go almost insane. He went mad for a period of time. There's a period of time where he almost joined Israel's enemies. He had a crisis of faith. He would go through a lot, guys. God put him through a lot in about 15 years. Probably, um... Guys, I, I have a book to suggest to you guys, um, and I, I really do think every Christian, you know, should read it. Um, you know, obviously the Bible is sufficient, but, the, you know, we have been blessed with great minds um, in history. And I would say one of the greatest books I've ever read is by Oswald Chambers, and it's called Christian Disciplines. Uh, Christian Disciplines by Oswald Chambers. It's, it's a short read. It's nice. It's full of great insight. And um, one of my favorite quotes and one of my favorite chapters is, is when Oswald Chambers talks about the discipline of, of uh, loneliness. Talks about the discipline of loneliness. In, in, in this chapter where he talks about the discipline of loneliness, he, he describes loneliness as an essential for the Christian. 
In our culture, we think that loneliness is something that ought to be avoided at all costs, right? If we feel lonely, there must be something wrong with us. If we feel any ounce of loneliness, if we feel any ounce of lack of companionship, that's either, uh, that's either the failure of the people around us and our friends, or that's the failure of us, right? We are incredibly scared of loneliness. And what Oswald Chambers is, he kind of he flips that upside down and he says, loneliness is not the enemy. In fact, it, it can be one of your greatest assets when being groomed by the Lord. Because David, though he might have been surrounded by people at certain parts of his life, lived a very lonely life. Especially in the first half of his life where uh, he was just a shepherd. And then he would also spend a lot of time just fleeing from Saul's army alone. And what I love, here's here's the quote from Oswald Chambers. He says this, The world is cursed with holiness preachers who have never trembled under awesome Sinai or laid prostrate in shame before Calvary and had the vile ownership of themselves strangled to death in the rare heights of Pentecost. They have never experienced loneliness. But the solitude of the sanctified, the loneliness of the child of God, brings again the glimmering of his father's feet among the sorrows and the haunts of human beings. And to the broken heart, to the bound and hereditary prisons, and to the wounded and weak, Jesus, our Savior, draws near. David suffered for 20 years. He waited for 20 years. When he was a shepherd alone, it was just he and God. It was just he and his sheep and God, right? And he was tending the sheep in the fields. You know, shepherds were nomads. They, they, would, they would take their sheep from city to city, all over the countryside, all over the nation of Israel, David would take his sheep all throughout the country. Just him. For miles and miles, just him and his sheep, under the stars with God. Alone, right? With nothing but God and a few sheep as his companions. When he became successful, he had friends. He had a wife. He had people that admired him. But before coming king, God would take him out of his context and put him in loneliness. God would take him out of his friend group, out of his marriage. He would take him out of everything. He would just pluck him out, and he'd place him in this field, this place where there's nobody to support him. Nobody is around. Before coming king, God had to make him alone in a cave, wet, cold, and afraid. This was David's upbringing. Saul had nothing like this, Right? Saul had no ounce of a struggle or loneliness before he became king. He, they just, he just became king, right? And so one of the main differences I would tell you between this failure of a king and the success of a king is the fact that David was lonely. The fact that David was taken from everything that he loved. Everything was stripped away so that it would be nothing but him and God. And as he was experiencing the apex of this loneliness, as he was being hunted by all sorts of people, as his friends had abandoned him, as the one man that he admired most in his life saw, he, was, he saw him as an older, like, uh, older brother, father figure. He was beginning to, he was after his head, and in the midst of all of that, in a cave, wet and cold, he wrote Psalm 57. And Psalm 57 says this, it says, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge, till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to the Most High, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. 
They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. I love this. It says in verse 8, it says, Awake my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord. Among all the peoples, I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens. Your, fruit, uh, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. God grooms his leaders by taking everything from them except him. Some of you have spent your entire lives avoiding loneliness. Spent your entire lives just running, running from being alone for just a second. You always have to be near people. You always have to feel affirmed by others. God gives us fellowship as a gift and as a means to advance his kingdom as fellow warriors, as fellow children, as brothers and sisters, as stones that build the house of God. There's no doubt about that. We need fellowship to accomplish God's purposes. However, for those of you that would venture to be a leader, for those of you that would, that would be called of God to lead people, you must be refined in the fires of loneliness. That is something you must endure. Or else we become like the rich young ruler who says, God, I will follow you. And God says, well, leave everything. And he leaves and he doesn't, he doesn't follow Christ because he loved his possessions too much. The road to Jesus, Oswald Chambers says, is alone. Alone. Why is that? Why is that? I, I, I think, and I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not declaring this to be truth, but I know this from personal experience. I'm not saying this is canonized, but I'm telling you, I, I think the reason God makes his leaders alone before using them is because they need to be focused in following and have a relationship with the Lord apart from anything that is around them. Uh, uh, apart from the praises of people, apart from the support of people, because a leader... A leader, guys, when the support leaves, must still be steadfast and declare what David does. My, my heart is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. When the support leaves, when the praise leaves, when the compliments leave, right? When everyone helping leaves, when, when all of these things fall because people fail, it's inevitable. There, 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 is, there needs to be this understanding that my heart is steadfast before the Lord. He is all that my heart longs for. All that I need. This is what made David a man after God's own heart. That even when he was being hunted by the man he admired most in the world, he could say, my heart is steadfast and I will give thanks to you. When all seemed lost, you know, can you imagine the, some of the conversations that David had with God? Didn't you anoint me as king? Right? Right? Didn't, didn't, wasn't my head anointed with oil? A sign of your anointing, a sign of the Holy Spirit being upon me? Aren't I your chosen one? And the very man that you would have me replace is after my head, and it seems like he's going to win. 
Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being in David's position of having done nothing but serve, right? And, and even in this, guys, even in this, I want to point out something. Even in this, David didn't just sit in a cave writing songs and complaining, right? Even in the midst of loneliness and sorrow, he didn't just sit in a cave, write songs, and complain, right? He didn't do that. He actually was able to assemble some mighty men, some people that were still loyal to him. He was able to assemble mighty men, and and while Saul was pursuing him, Saul was putting in all of his efforts, all his money, into trying to find David. David had taken some mighty men, and he was actually defending Israel from their enemies. So David, even while being persecuted, even while being rejected by his nation, was still going out of his way to protect them. Is that not an amazing picture of the cross? That even while Jesus was being spat upon, while Jesus was being rejected, whipped, and beaten, he was still doing everything that he could to endure and protect his sheep, his flock, his nation. Isn't that just an amazing picture of the gospel in David's actions here? While being hunted by the people he loves, he is seeking to protect them. That is the heart of Christ. That is the heart of a Christ follower. That is the heart of a Christ-centered leader. Enduring persecution and loneliness and still going out of his way to serve and protect his people. That's a shepherd. A shepherd knows sheep can't give him anything in return. David is a shepherd. And there's a really cool passage in 1 Samuel chapter 24. If you'll turn there. I'll turn there too. I'm going to read the whole thing because it's just so awesome. I don't have my NKJV, so sorry if it's a different translation than it says this in 1 Samuel chapter 24. So, so just to, to give you guys some context, that, that even when Saul was hunting David, David had an opportunity to kill Saul. A lot of people don't know this. David was face-to-face with Saul, and Saul was sleeping. And David could have just ended it all there. Ended it all right there. And I'm going to read the whole chapter just because it's awesome. I'll throw in some commentary every once in a while. It says this, First uh, Samuel chapter 24. It says, Now when Saul returned from uh, pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. He came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. means not to relieve himself, to sleep. You guys don't have a sick mind like I do. Okay. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. So, so picture this guy. So, so Saul hears word that David is, is somewhere, you know, amongst the valley of wild goats, right? The rocks of the wild goats. And so, and so Saul takes 3,000 men to go pursue David. And it's the middle of the night. They've been traveling all day. So Saul goes in to rest in this one cave along with a few of his men. They go into the mouth of the cave, not realizing that the cave is much, much deeper 
And, and deep, deep into that cave, that's where David and his mighty men were actually sleeping that night. And they were resting. And so now we get here to verse 4. The men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. So, so listen, listen. So, so, so God had told David, Listen, today I am delivering your enemy Saul into your hands. You do whatever you want with him. Right? So that is open-ended. That, that's not even God, like, that's not even God saying, well, but I really hope you show him, right? Like, God's not, God's not being passive-aggressive, right? He's just, he's just saying, hey, I am delivering your enemy to, into your hands. You do what you see fit. God is giving this open invitation, right? Now, God is sovereign. He knows what's going to happen. But, but I, I want you guys to understand this. David had a free pass from God right now. God says, I'm giving, you him. I'm giving him to you on a silver platter. And what David does is that he cuts off an edge of Saul's robe in the middle of the night while he's sleeping. In verse 5, it came af- uh, about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. So David feels guilty. David feels guilty that he cut Saul's shirt, right? This man who's been hunting him for years, Right? And David cuts off his robe, cuts off a little piece of his robe, and he feels guilty. So he said to the men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. So, so David is saying here, Saul is, Saul, whatever Saul may be, he was still anointed by God as king at one point. Far be it from me to lay a finger on him. He is still Israel's king. David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose and left the cave and went on his way. Saul still has no idea that David and his men are further in the cave. Verse 8. Now afterwards, David arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, saying, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the ground and prostrated himself. Isn't that crazy? So David comes running after Saul. Saul has no idea David's there. Saul's been hunting after David's head for years. And, and, and David just falls flat on his face before Saul. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men saying, Behold, David seeks to harm you? Behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave. And some said to kill you, but my eye had pity on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Now my father, see. See, this proves that David saw Saul as a father figure. Remember that David was pretty much rejected by Jesse, his own dad, right? Go and tend the sheep. Samuel's here, people are over, I just don't want anyone to see you. And then Saul brings him in and says, hey, you play the harp, you be my armor bearer, you get to watch the war, right, you get to be in here. For a long time, Saul was a father figure to David, and now Saul's trying to kill him. Verse 11, now my father, see indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you. 
know and perceive that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands. And I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the prophet of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? The Lord, therefore, be judge and decide between you and me. And may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So David is here before Saul and he's saying, you want my life taken. You have been trying to kill me for this whole time. But look, I had an opportunity to kill you. Is this not proof enough that I tend to do you no harm? You have all these delusions of betrayal and you want to end my life. But look, I've done nothing to you. Verse 16 says, when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? Then Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. You have declared today that you have done good to me and that the Lord delivered me into your hand and yet you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. Now behold, I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. So now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's household. And David swore to Saul that Saul went to his, throne, went to his home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is where David finally becomes king. You see, David had a chance to just kill Saul and become king right there. The easy way out. He would have slayed Saul. Everyone would have cheered because he was going mad anyways. But no. Saul was there and had the, uh, David was there and had the opportunity to kill him, but didn't. He showed mercy. And in fact, he offered up his life and said, you know what? The Lord judged between you and me. You want to kill me? Go for it. What's really interesting, guys, is that Pastor Mark talked last week about finishing well about finishing well, and, and, and how, how Saul had this inability. He, he just started spiraling down. And what is amazing to me is that the mercy of David and the kindness that another man showed him was what redeemed Saul's entire life. Saul would have gone down in the history books as have done nothing good ever in his life. But in this moment, in this moment where David showed him mercy, and when David stretched out his arm and he, when he turned the other cheek, so to speak, it was out of David's kindness that Saul was redeemed. That's what Jesus does with us. We're in this downward spiral of our own selfishness and by showing us mercy, when, when he has full right to take our lives, Jesus shows us mercy and, and redeems what little we have left. That's the heart of Christ. That's the character of Jesus. And David's heart was refined by fires of, tri fires of trial. 
You see, David had gone through so much, guys. His heart had been so refined by fire that it was tender enough to show mercy. I think that's a lot of the times, guys, you know, we wonder why bad stuff happens. I wonder why we, you know, because some of us suffer because we're dumb, right? Right? I mean, that's just natural. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't shake your fist at God when you've done something stupid and stupid things happen, right? Like, you, you shouldn't be indignant against the character of God when, when you do something that is so blatantly irresponsible and stupid and consequences occur, right? That's, that's just natural. But there are some things that we suffer that we don't believe we should have. And do you know what? We shouldn't have. There's some needless suffering. There's some undeserved suffering that we go through. And we wonder, as David probably did, why am I going through this if you love me, God? And in this moment, in this moment, guys, we understand why. That, that, that God had spent so much time tenderizing David's heart that by the time this broken soul Saul came before David, David was able to show mercy. There's a saying that says that, that the sun, same uh, sun that melts the ice also hardens the clay. What heart do we have? Do our hearts through trials grow harder, more bitter? Or are they softened, melted so that we might show mercy to others who are just so clearly, clearly lost? David's heart, David's ability to seek the heart of God in suffering is what made him a great king eventually. And I'll close with a few thoughts next 10 minutes or so, 15. And talk about David's kingship, right? Because, because the story doesn't end there. I wish the story ended there, right? So we wish that David showed mercy to Saul. He became king. Everything was great, and he lived happily ever after, right? Best king, like best king, best kingdom. Never did anything wrong after that. He maintained his character, never compromised the end, right? We hope for that. Riding into the sunset with his mighty men and his wife, and, and, and just bam, there we go, beauty, right? We hope for that, but that's not David's life. And you know what? I like that that's not David's life. You can't find a perfect character in the Bible besides Jesus, and I love that. You notice how the Bible does that? You notice how the Bible never puts a character that isn't flawed, and then finally there's a character that isn't flawed, and who is he? Jesus, right? Isn't that great? Isn't that great that that the people used by God were so flawed and so sinful, so debased, just as we are? Now, when David had finally assumed the throne of Israel, that is when things actually began to go wrong for him. You see, before, he had all these bad things happen to him, but but very seldom would he compromise his beliefs. Very seldom would he, you know, every once in a while, he'd do, you know, he went a little cuckoo for a bit. I mean, time in a cave being hunted by, you know, an army does that to you, right? So he went a bit cuckoo every once in a while, but every, he, he maintained his integrity until he became king. Now, he's finally king of Israel, and do and you know what? He accomplished a lot. He brought about great amounts of unity and peace among Israel. He united the tribes, but his character ended up wavering when he became king. In his time as king, he accumulated over eight wives. People don't know that about David. He had over eight wives. Some people said he had closer to 15 
uh, but only records eight. He had eight wives. He committed adultery with one of his best friend's wife, one of the generals of his army. He committed adultery. He took, he took uh, his friend's wife, and then he got her pregnant. And then when he realized he got her pregnant, he sent out Uriah, his friend, into battle, and he murdered him. He murdered one of his best friends. He neglected his family and didn't raise his sons well, right? He was so consumed with the kingship that he actually neglected his sons. One of his sons raped his daughter. That was in his household. That was like under his roof that happened, right? So under, you know, you know, in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, what we have now, right? If a, if a man can't manage his household well, he's not allowed to be a pastor and elder at a church, right? But this is the king of Israel, and his son is raping his, his daughter, right? That's happening. Another one of his sons tries to kill him and assume the throne, right? So David has to go into exile again because his son Absalom is seeking to kill him. And then he set a, a poor example towards the end of his life for his son Solomon. His son Solomon would finally assume the throne. We're going to learn about him next week. And he set a pretty poor example. You see, David had 8 to 15 wives. Solomon would have over 1,000. And at the end of his life, he finally wants to do something to kind of redeem his name. He, he wants to establish a temple to the Lord. He wants to build a temple. He, he gets all the plans out. He gets all the resources. He, he gets all these plans in motion. And God says, I'm not going to let you build a temple for me. They finally get the tabernacle back that has been stolen by the enemies of Israel. He finally gets it back using, uh, you know, he finally gets it back in war. And he's like, all right, the tabernacle, is, I mean, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant is here, right? The Ark of the Covenant's here. Let's build a temple for Jerusalem. We'll build a temple for the Lord. And God says, not letting you. You're not allowed to build a temple. You know why? You killed too many people. You're a man of war, David. I'm not going to let you build my temple. Can you imagine how heartbreaking that was for David? You've killed too many people to build a temple for me, David. I'm sorry. What is the difference between David and Saul then? You know? You, you look at their lives. They, they both, both had a lot of sin, right? They both had a lot of dysfunction, you know? Uh, I, I was telling you, I was re- doing research for this sermon, and, you know, I, I just standard, you know, before I did anything, just kind of looked up on Google, difference, you know, differences and similarities between David and Saul, or Saul versus David, you know, like all, all, all these things. And I could not find one article. Like, everything was just like puff piece articles on David, right? It was all like, David, David was this, David was this, and then Saul, like, you could, it was like he was Satan, you know? And do and you know what? When, when I look at the narrative of David and Saul, when I look at First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, when I, when I look at this, do you know what? You compare David's sins to Saul's, they're both horrendous. The sins that both of them committed in their lifetime. They, David, David's sins were no better than Saul's, no worse. So what was the difference between? Nathan, uh, there, there, there's, there's a point in 2 Samuel chapter 12 where, where David is at the height of his, of his sin. He had just killed Uriah, right? He had, just, he had gotten Bathsheba pregnant and he killed Uriah. And David is yet to repent of this, right? He's, he, he's just covering it up. And Nathan, who is a prophet, comes and, and, he, and he comes to David and, and he tells him a little story. 
He says there, you know, he, he tells the story of a man and his sheep, and and he, he uses metaphors to get David, you know, feel the weight of his guilt. Right? He he, he tells David what he's done. Here's how here's how David replies. He says, "I have sinned against the Lord." Immediately, when he's called out for his sin, he immediately just says, "I." I've sinned. And he would go on to write Psalm 51, in which he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. He says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my mother, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being, and teach me your wisdom in the secrets of your heart. Immediately when David is called out for his sin, he's broken before God, and he says, Teach me wisdom in the secret of your heart. God, obviously I have sinned because I have yet to understand the mysteries of your soul. Connect my heart with yours, O oh God. Immediately. You see, David's sins had consequences. Later on, his wives would go on to cheat on him. His son would die. Violence would spread throughout his home. But David was not cut off like Saul was for the very purpose uh, for the very reason that, that, that David was broken before him. Saul would just place blame on whoever did this or that. He would later on be redeemed by the mercy of David. But Saul, immediately, when he was called out by his sin from Samuel, he just points, because none of us do that, right? Since the beginning of mankind, what's the first thing? God's like, hey, Adam, what'd you do? He's like, wife did it. Right? Eve, snake. Right? Snake did it. Right? So since the Garden of Eden, we've been placing blame on other people. Right? I do this all the time. And you know what? I do it very discreetly. Right? I, I, I place blame on other people by kind of saying the good things that I was doing at the time. Right? Saul sinned and he placed blame on others. So God wasn't near to him. David sinned and immediately repented, so God drew closer to him. This is all speculation, guys, but can you imagine? Can you just imagine really quick? I, I, once again, this is speculation, but can you imagine what would have happened if, if God went up to Adam and Eve in the garden and he said, what did you do? And they immediately just said, I'm so sorry. Forgive me. Can you imagine, knowing God's character, what might have happened? I don't know. But, but what I do know is that in this moment, David broke the pattern of blaming and blaming and saying, he did this, he did this. David was introspective enough to say, no, this sin was mine and mine alone, and I committed it against God and God alone. So I'm not sorry because I got caught. I'm not sorry because other people feel bad. I am sorry because I have committed a crime against the one who loves my soul the deepest. The same God that has numbered every single hair on my head. I have turned from him. The God who loves me more than I could ever love myself. 
I have defied him. I have turned my back on him. And that brokenness that David has, that is the character that God is looking for. He says, sacrifices I don't desire. A pure and contrite heart. This harkens back all the way to when David was being chosen as king. It doesn't matter on the outside if you say, oh, I'm sorry, guys. You apologize. It doesn't matter how good you try to be afterwards because David would go on to sin afterwards. It is a matter of whether you experience the weight of your sin under God. And that harkens back to what Oswald Chambers was saying. We're saying there's too many preachers that have not have under they have not stood under the weight of God. There's too many Christians that that walk throughout the, the world just proclaiming Christ's name, but having no idea what it means to suffer under him. Have no idea what it means to be flat on your face crying because you were such a sinner. It is in those intimate moments with God when you realize how broken you are that God will show you, show you how redemptive he is. You must experience the weight of your brokenness to know the healer fully. Jesus would go on to say that the well well and healthy have no need of me, but the sick do. And I'll end here with 1 John 1, verse 7, says this. But if we walk in light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Listen, it's, it's not a matter of whether you have sinned or not. Listen. There is not a person in here who admits to being perfect, right? There's not a person in here who thinks they're perfect, right? If you claim to be, I know, I know you don't think that's actually true. The difference between Saul and David was that Saul knew he was imperfect, but still wanted there to be an image of perfection. He, he still wanted this, this godlike, this king-like air about him, this reputation about him. He wanted to be known as perfect. And he, he only cared about what the people thought, right? So if he repented, it was also that he would look humble. He would look contrite. He would look that way. David, we see later on, after he commits this and after he writes Psalm 51, he would go into a dark room. He would fast for three days, weeping before the Lord, just crying. David, in secrecy, repented to the Lord. David, in secrecy, would he would write Psalm 51 because he knew that he didn't need to have this open declaration in front of thousands of people and say, I have sinned, right? He didn't need to hold a press conference and have everyone see how humble he is. But David, in the quietness of his prayer closet, would go before the Lord and beat on his chest and say, God, have mercy on me, sinner. That's the heart that God desires. That's the heart that God's going to use. False humility is not becoming of the Christian. 
The world is full of false humility. Let us in this time of worship and when we get home and throughout this week, let us practice something. And and I'm going to challenge you with something incredibly practical. And I'm going to do it with you because I used to do it a lot and I don't do it anymore. Um, I'm going to challenge you with something very practical and something very weird. uh, But it's very biblical. I encourage you all sometime this week, hopefully every day, but I know stuff happens. Spend like 15 minutes in God's word. Look at it. But don't look at it as like a means of like, all right, I checked it off my list. Look at it in a sense of like, all right, what does this reveal about my character and my shortcomings, right? Then what I want you to do, and I'm going to do it this week, is go into your closet. Maybe if your closet is way too small and or messy, go into a private corner of your room and just talk to God about your issues. Like some of you haven't done that in like years or ever done that ever. Just talk to God about your sins and watch what happens, right? Right? I'm not saying you have to like, your knees need to be bleeding from hours and hours, you know, on the rug, you know, just and you banging your head against the wall, Lord have mercy on me. I'm just saying take a few minutes this week to sit before the Lord in quietness and don't tell anybody you're doing it. That's super important. Don't tell anybody you're doing it. Don't, don't, don't talk about it later. Don't tell me that you did it next week, okay? Just do it. Just don't tell anybody. Just you and God in a closet, in a small corner, in your backyard, whatever it may be, and just talk to him about sins you have committed and that you feel broken over and you're burdened over. And watch as God releases your heart from tension and condemnation. And feel the weight of Christ's forgiveness on you. I'm telling you that there's some of you that have burdens that you didn't even know you had. Talk to God about them. Experience what David experienced, which is the full weight of the forgiveness of God. Amen? Let's feel that as we worship in these last few songs. There's no communion tonight because we're all VBS'd out. Right? You can talk to Radar the Bat. That helps. Uh, but let's pray. Lord, we love you, and I pray that we'd be broken before you tonight, God, and uh, that we would somehow discover the same intimacy that David had, Lord. And David's intimacy wasn't because he was more holy of a person. It was simply because he sought your heart. And we're going to learn that next week, that David's last charge to Solomon was, seek God, and you will find him. I pray that we'd seek you this week and be found by you. We love you. We give you this time. We give you our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.